And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And we're very happy to have uh, somebody on the, the program who can give a, a, a very solid uh, – He's going to be able to paint such an atmosphere for uh, exactly the era that we're going with, with uh, uh, trying to paint a picture with this research. And um, I'm, I'm happy to have him on board tonight. Uh, before we bring on our featured guest, I just want to say uh, thank you to the Brooklyn Trolley blogger, Michael Cohen, who also joins us tonight for his excellent episode yesterday uh, about the uh, Negro Leaguer John Donaldson along with uh, the, Donald- the Donaldson Network's Peter Gordon trying to to spread the, the wealth of knowledge and, and breadth of, of discovery that is going on with the hopefully soon-to-be Hall of Famer John Donaldson. And, and again, Mike, I really appreciate you doing that. Well, thank you for having me this evening, and thank you for, you know, handing over the controls to me yesterday. It was a lot of fun, uh, very enlightening, very educational, and I hope this leads to a positive outcome on December 5th. I agree, and, uh, you know, I think something also we'll get into tonight uh, that we hope for December 5th, I'm sure, at some point tonight is uh, Gil Hodges. So, uh, But without further ado, let me bring on our featured guest for the evening, uh, he grew up in Coney Island. Uh, uh, he's been in uh, other places in Brooklyn as well, but he followed the Dodgers out there in 1961, and, and it's such—it's a fascinating uh, idea. Uh, uh, you know, just just—I I think it it may be a unique story, but then again, maybe not so much. And and uh, without further ado, Sheldon Shelley Sachs, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, my pleasure, Sam. Thank you for inviting me. So without further ado, let's start from the beginning. Uh, tell us about your Brooklyn roots. Tell us about uh, your baseball Dodger roots within that. Um, uh, what what year were you born and when? And where, excuse me. I, I was born in uh, May of 1937 in Coney Island. I was born on West 29th Street. Eventually, a few years later, we moved to West 23rd, right across from the Mermaid Theater. And uh, World War II started December 7th, 1941, and I have no recollection of that date. But I do have a recollection in October of 1941. I was four years old, and my father was discussing uh, with a, a neighbor the remarkable season of a Dodger baseball player, rookie named Pete Reza. And that began my lifetime love of the Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers. And as you said, you, you ended up following them, but, you know, we're going to get uh, uh, that deep at some point. Uh, uh, Mike, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass it over to you. Shelly, it's a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I have a question. Uh, being that you originated in Coney Island, I was hoping that you have a recollection or at least an anecdote and an understanding as to what might have happened in 1944 in Coney Island. There was a roller coaster called the Mild Sky 
chaser. It burnt down. Do you recall anything like that? The year was 1944. I I don't recall that specifically, but I do recall Luna Park burning down because I had an older sister that was 12 years older than myself, and she met her boyfriend the day the night after the Luna Park fire, and uh, they met at the Luna Park area, admiring or I should say, being somewhat disillusioned. disillusioned by the burning down of that property. But my recollection goes to uh, the, uh, the cyclone and Steeplechase Park. That's, uh, that's really what I remember most about Coney Allen and discussing Pete Reza. I did all sorts of research on uh, this remarkable rookie who led the National League in 1941 uh, leading the league in hitting, it's never been has never been done before or since in the National League. In the American League, it's been done twice. So you were born uh, in 1937. So you would have been uh, four years old. You were four years old uh, when Pete Reiser had that remarkable rookie year. So, you know, you're you're starting to grow. Uh, you're starting to have a little bit more understanding and consciousness of this game of baseball as well as what's going on within the world. So if you could just talk about some of those early years, the childhood of Shelley in Coney Island, uh, what was, what was those, those uh, 40s like, uh, 1942 onward? Well, I uh, remember that everything was rationed because of the war. Uh, I had an older brother who was two years older, and he and I, We'd uh, save paper, newspapers. We would save the silver lining from cigarettes uh, and from gum and string. And that that was a reclamation uh, by uh, the government uh, for the war effort. Everything was, you needed a piece of paper from the ration book, a coupon, to buy anything, to buy sugar, to buy gasoline. And I vividly remember there were very few young men in that era. There were uh, girls, would go, uh, teenage girls, 18, 19, early 20s, would go in packs to the movies. And I remember my brother and my cousin, both were two years older than myself, and they would have me begging outside uh, the Lowe's Theater across from Nathan's uh, for a quarter so the three of us can get into the movies. And the movies cost at that time a nickel apiece. Shelley, I can only imagine Brooklyn must have been busy like a beehive during the war years. Because quite literally, everything that uh, ended up in Europe left the Brooklyn waterfront. Uh, That was an an incredible military complex that they had. And I, I, I... I guess I'm asking you the day-to-day activity in Brooklyn, uh, even on, you know, a typical day, it must have been ferocious during the war years. Well, my older sister, the one who got married in 1944, she uh, uh, left high school early. She got a degree earlier and uh, went to work at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. 
and that was uh, uh, a madhouse at that Navy Yard. I've been, I was there a couple of times as a kid. What I remember most about that era, two things I remember most. One was at the end of the war was the uh, polio epidemic. We weren't allowed to go to movies, to uh, to swimming, swimming pools, anywhere where there was a crowd that was gathered. And my mother would make uh, all of us, I was one of five children, uh, we would have to wear camphor balls around the neck to ward off whatever it was that that caused the polio. The second thing I remember is that on the hot summer nights, and they were brutal, there was no air conditioning. Uh, we lived on uh, 20, West 29th Street then, and my mother would send my older brother and myself out in the evening, about 7 o'clock, 7.30, and we would go sleep on the beach in Coney Island. And on weekends, there were thousand maybe more of soldiers and sailors uh, sleeping on the beach because there were no hotels around that you can that I knew of, or if they were, uh, nobody had any money to buy it. And we would sleep on the beach. I would bring a pillow and a blanket, and I'd wake up in the morning. There would be clams on me or crabs on me and uh, starfish. I would get up around 7. I was always the early riser. So it was really safe. I mean, you think about it. You think about a uh, four-, five-, six-year-old kid with his brother who's two years older staying overnight, many nights, uh, but not, not weekday nights. This is uh, weekend nights uh, because of the uh, crowd of soldiers and sailors who were there for the weekend. That's my two recollections of Coney Island. Uh, it's such a vivid the the imagery the way you painted for me is just so awesome and and it I think the first time we've ever talked to somebody who recollects that way about sleeping on the beach because it was so there was no air conditioning yet for for you know mass air conditioning and uh, so so I guess my next thing is what are your earliest memories of Nathan? You're right there. You're, you know, you're talking about the theater across from Nathan. Talk about, uh, you know, the, the institution of Coney Island. Well, you have to understand I was a little kid and I was short for my age. And, uh, my cousin grew to be six, five. My brother grew to be six foot and I eventually made it to five ten. Uh, but that was when I was in the Army. So we used to sneak into Steeplechase, uh, excuse me, to Ravenhall Park, Ravenhall Baths. And it was near Nathan's, uh, Nathan, uh, near Nathan's. and uh, my brother and my cousin Barry would climb over by the handball courts, which se- separated the restaurant from Ravenhall Pool. Nobody had money to get in. I could not climb up that wall. I, I was frightened of it. So what I would do, I would look for a single woman in the restaurant, usually a little plump, and she would be in a bathing suit, and she had uh, a key around her wrist 
indicating she had a locker at Ray, at Raven Hall, and she also had a stamp on her on her uh, opposite her palm, uh, usually her left hand. And I would follow her like I was her child, and she would enter the entrance to Raven Hall from the restaurant, and I would just go in and follow her, and that's what I did all the time. My brother was amazed that I was able to get into the pool before he did. But that's then eventually we went to Washington Annex, the Washington Baths Annex, and we played. I played some handball there. Uh, school was. Uh, I went to PS 188 uh, in the beginning, and uh, I went to Mark Twain Junior High School in kindergarten. They had so many kids in kindergarten; they could not have it at PS 188. So they opened up kindergarten and first grade during World War II at Mark Twain Junior High School. I, we, uh, my family then moved to West 23rd Street, right uh, adjacent to the Mermaid Theater, and I uh, went to PS 80 uh, until 19, for about a year and a half, and then we moved to Williamsburg. I can't help but laugh. Two started in the public school system. Uh, I started kindergarten in PS236. And, I, again, I can't help but laugh. Over on Utica Avenue, in the Avenue J, uh, back when I was a teenager, a young teenager, there was a pool club there. And at night, we would hop the fence and go swimming at night, 1030, 11 o'clock at night, whatever. Uh, and I just can't help but laugh that some things haven't changed <laughs> from when you were a kid to when I was a young teenager. Uh, hopping fences, that's that's glorious to me, and I think that's uniquely Brooklyn. Uh, and thank you for your service, by the way. I'm a fellow veteran myself, but I served in the Cold War. Uh, so thank you, sir. I will ask thank you. you. I will ask you. Uh, Perhaps we're transitioning over to baseball, perhaps not. But on the streets of Brooklyn, we're dodging trolleys as hazardous as they say it was. Well, I'll tell you a story in Coney Island. There was a, tri- there was a trolley, I guess it was called Railway, between Surf Avenue and Mermaid, that went from close to Seagate, like 36th Street, all the ways to Stillwell Avenue. And it cost three cents for a child to go on that. Well, I never paid. My brother Don never paid. My cousin Barry never paid. And we would hitch a ride in the back of the trolley outside where that wheel, that round wheel where the wire would go up to the, uh, to the uh, wires above. And sometimes we would hitch by the doors that opened up in the middle of the trolley and had these rubber uh, edges at the end of it. But the, you never tried to uh, uh, hitch a ride on the left side where the driver, uh, where the conductor drove because he can see you in the mirror. And every <laughs> once in a while he would stop and run after us and we would jump off the trolley and just take off. So I remember that vividly in 
in Brooklyn going into uh, a little bit of the baseball uh, stories. When I went to Ebbets Field, one particular game in 1947, which I, I will discuss a little bit later, there was a tremendous rainstorm that took place in the seventh or eighth inning of a game. And I was living in Williamsburg, and in order to get to uh, Williamsburg from Evans Field, you took the Nostrand Avenue trolley all the way to the uh, uh, the uh, Nostrand uh, hub, which was on Marcy and Avenue and Broadway in Brooklyn. And it was raining so hard when we left that game that my brother, that the trolley stopped. It couldn't go anywhere. And it was like six, seven feet of water, basically. Uh, well, maybe not that much, you know, for a 10-year-old boy. It was probably like three feet. But it looked like seven feet to me. And the trolley couldn't go anywhere and stopped. And my brother and I jogged all the ways home from uh, from uh, that uh, where the trolley had stopped. And, and Sam, if I may, you know, this is sure. no coincidence. My sister is eight years older than me. She used to take me with her friends to Coney Island. And my mom would give her just enough money so, you know, we can go, grab a bite to eat, and come home on the bus or the train. So sure enough, we would arrive in Coney Island. You know, we'd eat a hot dog and get a soda. Uh, but we'd spend all our money on the Wonder Wheel or the Cyclone. And we were sneaking on the bus or the train. This is when we were still living in East Flatbush. We were, still, we were sneaking on the train and the bus to get home because we spent all our money in Coney Island. So, you know, this kind of lifestyle, there's no coincidence. Uh, it was a way of life out here. I can't help but laugh. So, so that's, you know, I, I think we're going to stay on the streets of Brooklyn throughout the episode, but I, I would uh, go ahead, and I think Mike will appreciate this direction, Shelley. Um, before you get into memories of your first Ebbets Field game, do you, you know, Mike explores a lot of the semi-pro baseball scene that was going on in both Brooklyn and around New York, and I'm wondering if you have any memories of, of anything early on other than the Dodgers? Yes, I, uh, a couple of things. There were a lot of soccer matches on Randall's Island. I went to one of them, and uh, most, almost all the players were foreign-born, foreign-speaking, or spoke English with an accent. And I particularly remember going to McCarran Park in in uh, uh, outside of uh, Williamsburg, it was um, Greenpoint, and in Greenpoint, they had a they called them a, the um, they, the the it was a supposedly a Jewish organization. They all were the House of David baseball House team. of David, correct? Right, and, and, and they were playing a team of African-American players. And I must have been about seven, eight years of age. I remember uh, it was a serious game. It wasn't uh, uh, humorous. It wasn't like the Harlem Globetrotters. It was really a, a, a tough game. 
And uh, I don't remember who won, but I do remember seeing that that team. Uh, I, I, and those were the only amateur teams that I saw, or minor league teams. Although I saw a lot of games at the parade grounds. That I did. I played in uh, some of those games. Parade grounds was a hotbed, a hotbed uh, of baseball throughout the first half of the century. Uh, at least 30 games a weekend, and they were all covered in the local papers, especially by the Standard Union. Uh, I can tell you here locally, right where I am, not more than two miles east over on McDonald Avenue and Avenue M, the Bay Ridge Park, uh, excuse me, the Bay Ridge, excuse me again, the Bay Parkway Dukes played over here on McDonald Avenue and Avenue M, and over on 15th Avenue and 86th Street, uh, the Bay Ridge Ball Club played over there. And each park could fit, you know, anywhere from 3,500 to 5,000 fans. And, of course, you know, you had the Bushwicks out in Woodhaven. But if you saw a Negro League team right around that year, and if, if you might have caught that at Randall's Island, there's a good chance that team could have been the New York Black Yankees. Uh, don't write that in stone, but there's a chance that that might have been the team you saw. It could be. I just remember that they were fabulous athletes, really were. Um, I, I just marveled at the uh, the, the last, uh, since the 1940s, 50s to the current day, that uh, unfortunately there are fewer black athletes playing professional baseball today than they were when, when uh, in the 50s when the uh, Jackie Robinson era started in 47 on. Indeed. So let's, so let's talk about, as we're leading to 1947, uh, let's talk about your first Ebbets Field game, your first Dodger game. What, what do you remember about it? Well, it wasn't my first Dodger game. I went to Ebbets Field during the war with my father. Uh, and I don't remember too much about it, I do remember that uh, the Dodgers won the uh, pennant in 41, and, but I was obsessed with Pete Reza and not, not necessarily uh, with the history of the Dodgers. But in 1947, uh, April 15, 1947, an amazing thing happened in American society and probably the world. Jackie Robinson played the first game for the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, he did not get a hit that game, but another rookie got a hit that game that's in the Hall of Fame. Duke Snyder played in that game. So I became obsessed with, I guess, race relationships uh, around my looking in Brooklyn and what have you. So when I went to Dodger games in, in 45, 5, 46, and 47. 47, I started looking around at who, who went to these games. And in 46, I don't ever remember seeing an African-American at a, at a baseball game. It might have been a few. I just don't, you didn't stand out. It's like going to a hockey game. You just see uh, Caucasians there, basically. But since Robinson started playing, I looked around, and 
about maybe 25 to 30% of the fans in 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 Ebbets Field were were not white. They were various colors, mainly African American. And the men dressed up, all men, Caucasian or or blacks or browns, they they wore a suit or a sports jacket, a tie, a hat. The women dressed like they uh, they were going to a, a society affair, uh, especially the black women. Black women were beautiful. They they were dressed up like they were going to church. And then we, my brother and I, went to a game. The end of August, 1947. Now, there are two dates that stand out in my mind for that year. One was August, uh, April 15th, when Jackie Robinson broke in. And the other one was July 5th, 1947, when Larry Doby played for the Cleveland Indians. So my brother and I go into the game in, in the end of August. And the Dodgers are playing Cincinnati, and they're getting killed. They're getting shellacked. And the Dodgers, later on, I learned, they they wanted to bring the African-American ball player in one, one, at, one top athlete at a time. So in 1947, it was Jackie Robinson. 1948 was Roy Campanella. 1949 was Don Newcomb. But in the end of August of 1947, the Dodgers were getting killed, and they bring in a ball player, a, an African American ball player, to pitch. It was like the sixth or seventh inning. Didn't pitch well. His name was Dan Bankhead. He was one of five brothers. All five of them played in the Negro League. Dan Bankhead was the only one to play for Brooklyn. Played in the major leagues. And by the seventh or eighth inning, as I said earlier, it was pouring rain. I have never seen rain like that in in Brooklyn in my lifetime. And the bottom of the ninth inning, Dan Bankhead came up to bat for the first time. And lo and behold, he hits a home run. The first time at bat, he hits a home run. And I was so impressed with that. It's, here I am, 70-some-odd years later, and... That game stands out among all the games that I've ever seen, including the ones in Los Angeles. Shelley, I want to know two things. If Ebbets Field were still standing today, I know how I'm getting there. I want to know your commute from your home to Ebbets Field. I want to know how you got there. Uh, and secondly... Okay. Oh, go right ahead, sir. No, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to your question. Well, I just wanted you to take us inside the barbershop, inside the candy store, <laughs> the newsstand, a bunch of friends kicking around over an egg cream. I want to know what the conversation was like with Jackie Robinson and incorporate the New York Giants and the New York Yankees because this is Brooklyn and you couldn't help but speak about all of it. And uh, I'm sure at one time or another you got into, uh, you know, arguments with your friends. Okay. When I first saw, when I lived in in uh, Coney Island, uh, we took the Mermaid Avenue bus 
from 29th Street or 23rd Street, or we walked to the Stillwell Avenue train station. So when you lived in 23rd Street, I generally I almost always walked. When I lived in 29th, I almost always walked as well because nobody had money for uh, uh, for those things. So we would take normally we would take like the the uh, Brighton Express, and we would get off at Prospect Park, and we would take the shuttle. A, uh, I, I don't even recall the name of it, but it was the Frank. I think it was the Frank, Brooklyn Franklin shuttle. A couple of stops, and it led you right off at at Ebbets Field. I used to meet my father there to go to the game at Freddie Fitzsimmons Bar, which is right across the street from Ebbets Field. And in those days, Ebbets Field to me was like the Taj Mahal. As as I got older, I realized how dilapidated it was. The seats were terrible. Uh, the, uh, fortunately, they had very few places for cars. You you parked if you had a car, if you're lucky enough to have a car, you parked in a private lot. But most people went by train uh, or uh, or trolley. Nelson Avenue trolley went right by there, and and, uh, and and going back would be the same way. When I went, uh, when I lived in uh, in uh, Bensonhurst, I basically did the same thing. I took the Brighton train. When I lived, uh, or I actually, actually, I took the West End train. When I lived in uh, in Kings Highway, I took the uh, Brighton train. So that was how to go there. Now, the second part of your question is uh, the uh, candy stores. Candy stores were usually mom and pop shops. The one I remember most was the one where uh, I, uh, two of them I remember, one in Williamsburg on Bedford Avenue between South 2nd and South 3rd, and another one when I lived on East 29th Street between Avenue P and Kings Highway around the corner from the, the Nostrand Theater uh, was on Avenue P was, the, uh, was a mom-and-pop uh, candy shop. And in both instances, the owners slept in back of the store, so they uh, didn't have they didn't they didn't have a transportation problem to go to work, and we we would go in there and almost always <laughs> the discussion was was the Brooklyn Dodgers baseball team. In 1951, I think the discussion then became in the winter time the Brooklyn Dodgers base uh, football team. Because Brooklyn Dodgers yeah. had a football team, and I remember uh, the quarterback was I think Bob Chappius, if I remember right. So we would discuss that along with the dreaded New York Yankees football team, because both teams were in the All American Conference, of which I think three or four teams survived to this day, with the Cleveland Browns that and the Forty Niners being uh, two of them. That is correct, sir. Uh, you have insight into a great deal of sports history. And I, I, will I tell you another. If I'm, yeah, go ahead, show. Well, when I met my wife when I came back from Korea, I took her to, I believe it was the Polo Grounds, and we went to see a game 
between the New York Titans, I think it was the Boston Patriots, and what I remember most about that game was near the end of the game with just a few minutes to go, a botched punt attempt by New, by the Titans led to a fumble and a touchdown by the Patriots who won in the last minute of the play, of the game. And they, and also the fact there were very few fans in the stadium. That's incredible. Sam, I'm, I'm sorry. Just to hear, you know, uh, about the old All-American Football Conference and, and the Boston Patriots and the New York Titans. Shelley, this is incredible. Thank you. Thank you. You're making me feel uh, old. one of the best conversations we've ever – yeah, but it's still one of the best conversations we've ever – had on here so uh, the breadth of of description is is remarkable and um my my question for you you said that you are now remembering Ebbets Field is dilapidated do you think that Walter O'Malley kept it uh, neglected that was a little negligent with Ebbets Field considering that he had his eye you know on the future yeah i i kind of think so i think uh O'Malley wanted uh, uh, the city to come up with a, uh, a, a beautiful stadium on Atlantic and Flappish Avenue, and uh, Robert Moses had other ideas. I think uh, O'Malley, uh, you know, listen, baseball, at, at that time, you don't realize that, that you know, it's, professional sports is a major business in this country and probably in the world. So you have to look at the bottom line, and the more money you make, uh, basically you're going to uh, spend more money on players, have better better teams, and better teams means more attendance, more revenue, uh, the higher commercial rates, uh, rates, sponsorship. I mean, it's oh, now he's made a fortune. He made a fortune out in Los Angeles, and he tried to do it in uh, Brooklyn, and I was heartbroken. I lived in Brooklyn when I I. I was, I was in Brooklyn. I was just got out of the army when he, uh, when the Dodgers went to Los Angeles. It was heartbreaking for me. I had scrapbooks. I kept for years of every game the Brooklyn Dodgers played with a write-up. I, we had eight newspapers. You can take your pick. You can take the World Telegram. You can take the Journal of Americans articles. You can take Jimmy Powers from. From uh, uh, the uh, was it the Daily Mirror, you could take Dick Young from the uh, Daily News. My cousin, my first cousin, was a uh, sports columnist for Newsday. Stan Isaacs, he wrote a column for them for decades. I mean, we were a very sports-minded family, especially on my father's side. Mike, uh, go ahead. Uh, I'm I'm sitting here in amazement. I, I really am. And look at the way Atlantic Avenue and Flatbush Avenue turned out. The site that O'Malley wanted turns into a mall, and they put Barclays Center right across the street. Uh, what a shame! And you know, O'Malley really was—he had a, a palace in mind. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we've all seen. You know the graphic, the the blueprints, and you know the plans for the site. But uh, what a shame, uh, Shelley. I want you to, as best you can, uh, explain 
to, you know, as a Brooklynite at the time, the gut-wrenching tearing away of this baseball team from the borough. And at the same time, you know, are people giving the New York Mets that, you know, one-eyed look like, who are these people coming our way? Yeah, you know, it was just, uh, I, I think you, you had a very powerful man in, in Robert Moses, a weak governor, a weak mayor, Bob Wagner, who just didn't understand uh, what the Brooklyn Dodgers meant to Brooklyn. Now, the Giants left. Giants, uh, you know, there are very few people I ever met that were Giant fans. Uh, Vince Scully was one of them. But but Brooklyn was everything. I mean, it, you just lived and died Brooklyn. Uh, the story goes you can walk on Ocean Parkway in the summertime, and you can walk 20 blocks and never miss uh, hearing a pitch on the radio by Red Bob or Connie Desmond or, uh, or Vince Scully or whoever was the announcers at the time. Because everybody had their radio outside. They were... Uh, the men would be in the those, long, those uh, white undershirts, long undershirts, and they would have a bottle of beer or, or a cherry Coke or cherry soda outside and playing cards. And the women also. Women were, were probably uh, stronger fans than the men because the women were the nurturers. They raised the sons. Uh, the men went off to work, so the women knew baseball. They had to talk to their kids especially their sons. So it was devastating. And that's one of the reasons, the main reason, I left New York and moved to Los Angeles. So talk about that. So, so well, you know, I, it, it's, I almost want to, like, get a podcast devoted to every year of Shelley uh, from 47 onward. But, you know, obviously we can't. We can't do that. So, why don't why? Uh, let me uh, angle it this way. Uh, at 1947, whether it be baseball, whether it be Brooklyn, whether it just be an adolescent Shelley coming along. When, when was the first time you had any interest in law whatsoever? Oh, from the very beginning. I, uh, I especially since my father's side of the family, most of them were bookies. So <laughs> the law was a, uh, a prime interest. I always wanted to be a lawyer. I uh, was not afraid of public speaking. I thought if you spoke well, you can be a great lawyer. Only later on that I realized you have to write well to be a, good, a great lawyer. Uh, you have to have a rational mind. Sometimes you have one. Sometimes I don't. But uh, I was always interested. I was always interested in Supreme Court rulings. I was interested in uh, when uh, Truman uh, 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 was going uh, head to head with the with the uh, steel with the coal mine, coal workers, uh, Kennedy John F. Kennedy with the steel workers. Uh, the law always interested me. I, I can add one other thing. Uh, when I when I was in Williamsburg, I, I my mother uh, had had me join the PAL, the Police Athletic League. So I became really close with uh, some of the policemen, 
And so the law was always a topic uh, whenever I was around with them. It's it's just uh, it's fascinating. Uh, Mike, do you have anything to follow up with that? Uh, PIO, you know, uh, again, I, I I followed in your footsteps, Shelley, uh, and I'll cycle back to the candy store anecdote. Uh, Sam, the candy store I hung out at was owned by an old older couple, uh, Max and Marsha. And they were Holocaust survivors, and they lived a couple of blocks away. And Max maintained a room in the back of the candy store, and he would take naps. And, you know, me and my crowd, we would, you know, man the front and make sure everything was safe and sound. You know, and we'd take care of Marsha when she was alone, and they were like family. So I essentially followed in your footsteps, Shelly. Yeah, I remember when uh, I, I think it's not. I think it's just the tradition of Brooklyn with the candy stores. I remember when I was going to Madison High School. Uh, we went to this candy store, and and I, if I had any money on me, I would get a pretzel and an egg cream, and it cost eight cents. <laughs> Two cents for the pretzel, six cents for the egg cream. If you wanted a Coke and, and or a cherry Coke, it was a nickel. And Sam, just so you know, after school, I used my money yeah. to get an RC Cola and a pack of baseball cards. Royal <laughs> Crown Cola, correct? Yeah. So I'll tell you a story you about know, baseball cards if you want to. If you want to hear it. Well, uh, I, I will only say that the you know I was born in 1985, and at some point. Weekly, when I was living in West Palm Beach, Florida, uh, between age 6 and 10. And you can date this because it was during the time that they were killing Superman in the comics. Spoiler alert for anybody out there. But that was really the only time that I was dedicated to going every Sunday to get the new issue of Superman. But it's still, I still cannot completely relate because the place that I was getting you know, it was probably just some newsstand. It wasn't the same feeling that you guys are talking about. Well, in World War II, bubblegum just came out. And the mothers would line up outside the candy store for these one-penny bazooka bubblegum with uh, comics in it. You didn't have cards then. But when I was a teenager, I amassed thousands of cards, baseball cards, because I was really a good flipper. I mean, I flipped cards there you go. And, and collected thousands of them, thousands. And I was also good at shooting the cards to the corner, to, to a wall. It was like we did with pennies, the closest to the wall wins. We did that with baseball cards as well. We played a lot of street games. We played... Uh, Johnny on a pony, we played punch ball, we played stoop ball, we played stick ball, we played uh, um, with uh, uh, soda cap bottles uh, on the sidewalk. We had uh, yo-yo, Cheerio yo-yo was big in Williamsburg. I know Duncan yo-yo had most of Brooklyn, but Cheerio yo-yo had, I remember a time in 1946, I was leaving PS 37 in, in Williamsburg, 
And outside was a young man, about 23, 24, with two yo-yos, one in each hand, and doing all sorts of tricks. And we all went with him to a candy store on South 3rd and Bedford Avenue where they sold the Cheerio yo-yo and, more importantly, the Cheerio string. I think the string is where the companies made their money. And he said he would give... He would give out prizes every week. I, we had to do various tricks for him. And I was pretty good at that. I was pretty good at, uh, at the yo-yo. And I used to win almost every week he was there. So that was an uh, important street game for me, was playing with the yo-yo, as well as playing with marbles. The New York Daily Mirror used to sponsor tournaments for every county in New York State, I believe for a marble tournament. And I was fortunate to be successful a couple of times in, in that, 1946 and 47, I think it was. So I was like the odd sport champion. I was a tiny kid, <laughs> skinny, very fast. But I, I, used to, I played in every sport, including football and flag ball and stickball and handball. And basketball. Basketball, I used to get I used to get bruised all the time. <laughs> but the uh, the big you are listening to the Kelly. Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Uh, you, uh, our guest tonight is Coney Island's own Sheldon Shelley Stacks. And, and Mike, uh, before passing it back over to you, I, I would just say that, like, I guess in this day and age, I feel like all these Brooklyn sports would be on like ESPN nine. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I, I've played every single one that Shelley mentioned. Uh, the big one was Skelly on the sidewalk. Uh, you know, bottle caps, we used to melt crayons, and with the toothpick, you know, you'd melt different colors, and with the toothpick, you make designs, and who could make this best Skelly cap? And, you know, uh, we'd all try to impress each other, and we'd trade all different sizes. Uh, so that was a real big deal. Uh Playing on the streets of Brooklyn, uh, we didn't need a playground, trust me. Uh, right in front of the house was just fine. And uh, I, I think, uh, Shelley, this holds true in your day because it, it still rang true in my day. We were out on the streets, but there, are, there were always parents, multiple parents on the porch watching over us. We weren't alone. We thought we were alone but we weren't alone playing. Uh, there was always multiple parents either watching out the window or sitting on the stoop monitoring us. Uh, so we were always under supervision. But, you know, we, we like to think that we were on our own when we were kids. That's true. I remember there, uh, well, during the war, there were very few men around. But the, uh, but the mothers were out there watching. And if it wasn't the mothers, it was the older sister or, or, an, or an aunt. We were we were protected. We, we really were, and I, we felt safe. I mean, I never felt uh, uh, frightened in any way uh, or any danger. Uh, during World War Two, we had no no cars were built, and tires were at a premium because uh, Japanese invaded the Philippines, so there was no rubber, and uh, that's where uh, uh, imitation rubber, rubber came came into being. But I remember one time we were playing in the streets in the 40s, 
and there was a car by third base that was going to be out third base. And one of one of the kids, the older kids, went to uh, the uh, the uh, house, or the apartment there, banged on the door and told the guy to move his car or he's not going to have any tires when he gets out. And the guy <laughs> moved the car. So we had free reign. And then, so you didn't have to worry about a car. And, and if there was a car, I mean, uh, they would, the guy that owned, I remember he owned a red Pontiac convertible. And there were four of us. And he would give us a dollar to watch the car while he went and did his errands or what have you. And so, so yeah. in that case, we used his tires as uh, third base. So, Shelley, you were 18 in 1955 what was your story what was your your deal at that point well i uh 1953 i graduated high school i was 16 i was uh in, in a foster home so i left the foster home took my own apartment and in january of 1955 uh the government was uh, ending the, the Korean GI Bill, which was expiring January 31st of that year. So on January 18th, I, I went with my mother to a recruiting office. I was 17 and a half, and she had a sign for me. I enlisted in the Army for three years, and uh, I thought I would get away and see the world. So they shipped me off to Fort Dix. New Jersey for my basic training in January. And then uh, six weeks later, they sent me to Fort Benjamin Harrison, Indiana, outside of Indianapolis, to the finance school. And then I went off to see the world. They sent me to Fort Jay, Governor's Island in New York. And I stayed there for about <laughs> six months. And then they, sh- then they shipped me to Korea. And I was there for so so before 15, 16 so before, months. before Mike follows up. So so I I obviously I don't think I, I followed the timeline exactly right to uh, know before following up with this question to know the answer to it. So October fourth, nineteen fifty five. Where exactly were you? Oh, okay, October fourth, fifty five, Brooklyn Dodgers. We're playing the seventh game of the World Series against the Yankees. I'm in uniform, uh, leaving Fort Jay, Governor's Island, going to Coney Island Hospital on my way to Fort Lewis, Washington, to go to Korea. And my grandfather, my mother's father, was dying in Coney Island Hospital. So October 4th, I'm there with my uniform, and... They only allowed two people at a time into the room. So while I was waiting, I'm in this waiting room watching Johnny Padres pitch against the Yankees. And the TV set was maybe six or eight inches long. And it had like a four-foot magnifying glass in front of it. And there must have been about 70, 75 people crowded in watching Johnny Padre shut out the, uh, the Yankees, and Brooklyn wins their World Series, first ever, first and only 
in Brooklyn. And people are screaming and yelling. And my father says to me, I have to take you to the airport, to JFK, and you're going to uh, Seattle. Let's go. So I, my grandfather's condition was terminal, but he was still alive. I said goodbye. And on the way to the airport, we're stopped by mobs of people. It's like VE Day, VJ Day. Uh, they, they're giving me ham sandwiches, a Jewish boy with a ham sandwich, uh, uh, Dr. Brown's cherry soda. One person gave me a beer. My father took it from me. And we, I go to the airport, and I kind of take United Airlines flight. I think it was 10. I'm not sure what the flight number was. Uh, it, no, it wasn't 10. It was uh, uh, significance in that. Uh, I'll explain to you why. It was a uh, a prop plane. We stopped in Chicago in the middle of the rain, and I was with a friend of mine who was going to Korea with me, and I wanted to get off and see Chicago, but it was like 1 or 2 in the morning, and it was pouring rain. We stayed on that plane, and we landed in uh, Seattle. The very next flight, the very next flight, somewhere over Idaho, I think, or Iowa, I'm not sure, a man put a bomb on it in his mother's suitcase and the plane exploded. It was the first act of uh, terrorism of a bomb in a plane. It was the very next flight. So I go, I go, I check in at the USO, I go, I rent a room, I go to sleep there. I wake up in the morning and I hear this horrifying news and I couldn't call my mother. She didn't have a telephone. So I tried calling my father and I finally got through and I told him I'm okay. That I, I, I wasn't on the plane that uh, killed all those people. That's uh, uh, just, that's yeah. A, <laughs> wow. That that's uh that's a that's an amazing story, Shelley. Uh once again I have to cycle back to your military service. We may have marched the same ground and I'm proud to say uh I spent a year at Camp Casey and that's a Korean War legacy that's still existing today. So again thank that's you for the station. There you go. Oh, my man, Shelly. I was with the 7th Infantry Division, <laughs> and and I spent 15 months there. But uh, some of, yeah. a lot of it I spent, um, I was a, uh, a beginning when I went there, they mailed me, they made me a mailman, and I would, stay, I would go to Incheon or Seoul to send the mail up to the front lines. And then eventually I became personnel sergeant for uh, with the seventh uh, quartermaster company, but I was personnel sergeant for the entire division. Seventh infantry infantry division. Uh, wow, uh, I spent a year there, and just so the audience knows, uh, that's about thirty thirty five kilometers from the DMZ. Am I correct? That's correct. Yes. Right. Right. Uh, amazing, and you already answered what, one of my questions. I I, I was going to ask you about the bedlam that uh, took place in in Brooklyn that October day in 1955. But I was wondering, 
if it was, you know, uh, if somebody imparted this knowledge to you, if you're aware of the exact parade route that took place in Brooklyn. No, I was uh, in uh, I, I was in Washington or on my way to Korea when that occurred. So I don't know I anything about the parade. I was hoping that somebody might have shared that story with you. I was uh, grasping there. Unfortunately, now, I, I, I feel um, I feel something having to do with Borough Hall is would make sense for at least that being the starting point, and then heading towards Flatbush Avenue and uh, and down that. I don't know how far it would necessarily go, but I, I definitely think that's something we uh, we should follow up with and. Um, as we're closing in on the hour, gentlemen, I'm hoping that we can do, uh, you know, like 15 more minutes, if that's okay with you guys. That's good with me. It's fine. I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we're going to get there. Let, let's, we'll slow down a bit. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but so I, that's where we have to start. To tell, uh, you know, I, 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 Whatever you're able to share, because I know it can be hard, but tell us about your experience in Korea. Uh, first of all, we were on a ship that took, we went from Seattle to Adak in the Aleutian Islands. We had a lot of dependents on board that ship. And I was a, put on guard duty of guarding the dependents. So the, the wives who were going to visit their their sweethearts in ADAC, they fed me well. They would come out, give me oranges, give me uh, uh, roast beef sandwiches. It was really nice. Uh, Korea itself was a, uh, a war-torn country. It was just two years after the war ended. And uh, they had... Uh, out. They didn't even have outhouses for the first couple of months. Uh, they then put outhouses and they they had uh, they had pot bellied stoves that you slept in in a Quonset, in a pub in a tent and then they built Quonset huts. Uh, the uh, they had a uh, maybe twelve or fifteen people to a Quonset hut and one person would be designated uh, fireman. He would be up all night making sure that the fire didn't do any destructive damage, and then he would be off the next 24 hours, and then somebody else would be a fireman. The, uh, they, did not, uh, they did not have running water. They didn't have uh, current electricity. It was run, run by generators, which would go out. I had a filling done on my tooth with a, uh, a Korean civilian uh, turning a generator. So, but unfortunately, the current wasn't steady. It was very painful, and they didn't have Novocaine. So that uh, the uh, we had Katusa's station with us. They were con- Korean Army attached to the United States Army. We had three or four of them that slept uh, with us, uh, uh, and uh, that was interesting. Uh, you learned a lot about their culture. One took me uh, on his farm. His uh, family owned a farm. He, he took me there one weekend and showed showed me the ways uh, that. Uh, and Korea was South Korea was an agri- agrarian country, 
Sigmund Ree was the uh, premier. He was a he was a thief, a crook. He uh, invaded the treasury. He and his wife owned all the transportation and or the uh, hotels in uh, in Seoul. Seoul was the only city that was somewhat civilized, but uh, they uh, they did have uh, bathrooms. Uh, it was very cold. It got really cold. Uh, you're out in Camp Casey. When I was at Camp Casey, there was no, there was nothing there. It was just an army base, and a few uh, Koreans would start a little village and sell their wares. And I, I gather now Camp Casey is surrounded by a major city in South Korea. It's changed differently. Yeah, the wind chill factor. There were times it got close to 40 below zero in the winter time. Uh, summertime was brutal. It was a combination of uh, of New York and Chicago plus a, probably another 10 degrees in you in uh, in temperature or humidity. And we had no uh, ability to to uh, shower every day because the portable showers came out once a week. Food was good. Food was not bad there. Um, they had uh, 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 a PX or enlistment uh, facility with cigarettes. And this is 1955. A carton of cigarettes of Chesterfields or Lucky Strike was a dollar. And <laughs> if you, the most popular cigarette was Kent, because uh, a lot of soldiers traded it on the black market. So a filter cigarette, was, a carton would be a dollar ten. If you had a bottle of beer or you wanted straight scotch, it was a nickel. If you had a mixed drink, it was a dime. Um, you can go into Seoul and get a haircut, a shine, a shave, a massage, and with a tip, would cost you, it would, you'd spend a dollar. But don't forget, I can't I was, uh, <laughs> I, the only thing I can tell you is that as a private, when I entered the Army, my pay was $70 a month gross. And I <laughs> sent a, uh, an allotment wow. home to my mother. And uh, it, it, after taxes, I it was like, uh, I think they took 6 or $8 out for taxes. So you're getting $62. I sent $40 at that time home to my mother every month. And I had, and I, had, I didn't need much money. I mean, I had uh, room and board, clothing. I had uh, medical care, food. Army took care of everything. And I and when were you? When did that. you return? I I I left I, I left uh, Seattle, probably October fourteenth or the fifteenth of nineteen fifty five. I came back in Seattle the beginning of February 1957. My brother was going to USC at the time, and it was pouring rain in Seattle, which seems to be the norm. So uh, planes were suspended. And right across from uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, was a Greyhound bus station. Now, you have to remember, I was in 1954, Nine, excuse me, 1957, I was 19 years old when I came back. 
So I said, I'll take a bus from Washington to California. There's only two states. It's like from Massachusetts <laughs> to New York. It'll take me like two and a half, three hours. I was on that yeah, bus right. for 32 hours <laughs> wearing a, a, a very heavy woolen uniform because Korea was cold and Washington was cold. And I, I arrived in, in Los Angeles beginning of February 1957. It was like 81 <laughs> degrees. And I went to visit my brother who is who wasn't home. He was sharing a, an apartment, a house with two other guys. I finally got a hold of him. He was at SC. And I, I w- went to visit him. And he told me to take the buses, you know, what buses to take. And I got picked up by three girls in a convertible, three beautiful Southern California girls. And they took me directly to SC. And I said to myself, I'm coming back to L.A. no matter what. I said, the Dodgers are here, <laughs> and these three beautiful young ladies were there. So, so, so I did. my follow-up is, uh, you know, this is February 1957. At what point had you heard whispers? What was the, the knowledge of, on your part of what was going on with the Dodgers at this point entering the 1957 season? Oh, yeah, there were rumors all around. Uh, uh, one place was to go to Minneapolis, and O'Malley was demanding uh, 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 the site. I think originally Moses offered the Dodgers a site in Bedford-Stuyvesant. I believe that was true. And eventually he offered them a site where, uh, where the Mets play now. And I remember O'Malley saying, you know, we're the Brooklyn Dodgers. We're not the Queens Dodgers. But uh, I, I met about eight years ago a, uh, a, con- a city council member, who, uh, Roz Wyman, who was, city, who was a, a member of the city council in, in L.A., who persuaded O'Malley to go to Los Angeles. And I had a long conversation with her, but I started off by telling her that she's the reason why I moved to Los Angeles. I said, you, you took my Dodgers. I mean, uh, I, I, I lived and died and breathed. Every report I ever had to write in public school, uh, uh, in elementary and middle school, was all about the Dodgers. I, it was the love of my life. And I came to, finally came to L.A., and I've been a Dodger fan uh, from 41 to 2021, 80 years. Shelly, I would like to know, uh, on our podcast, we talk to people from wherever. We have a friend in Arizona, uh, and, you know, retirees, they go to Florida, they go to North Carolina, and I'm talking from New York. You went to California. As somebody who's still in Brooklyn, who's looking forward to, you know, leaving the state when I retire, how did you, the New Yorker, like and adapt to California? Well, it's interesting. I, I graduated college. I married my last year of college. So I drove out. My wife was a true Brooklynite. She went to Midwood, and she couldn't drive. So I did all the driving, picked up Route 66 in East St. Louis, and took me into California. Uh, unfortunately, 
we stayed at uh, for about six weeks at my wife's uh, aunt and uncle's house, and they lived in Torrance. And Torrance in California at that time was basically a cow town. My wife hated it. I mean, she loved her aunt and uncle. They were very generous to us, and uh, I, I love them. I, I'm so in touch with the, their children. But Torrance, there was nothing to do there. So for six weeks, she just brooded, and she said, why don't we go back? But I, I got a job, and I moved to West L.A. because my brother lived nearby. And that opened up a different avenue. I always liked I loved L.A. when I first came back from Korea. I, so I spent a week there. So I, I knew the uh, the weather was a great equalizer. But there was opportunities here. Great. I mean, and, and best of all, you didn't have to wear a suit and tie. In New York, whenever I applied for a job, you had to wear a suit and tie and a hat. Here I'm in Los Angeles, and you go, you go, and you wear, you know, you wear nice clothes, but you, you didn't have to wear a, a tie or a suit. So L.A., and it was, we struggled. I mean, our first apartment, we had lawn furniture, and and our uh, for furniture we borrowed it from uh, my wife's uh, aunt and uncle's house in Torrance. And uh, my wife got pregnant right away, and then she got pregnant again right away. But uh, L.A. has been very kind to to my family and to me. Uh, I I love it here. I just came back from New York. I was in New York two weeks ago. I I cannot cut my ties to New York. I love that state. I love the city. I I didn't go into Brooklyn this time, but... I, I intend to make a tour of all the home, all the places I lived in Brooklyn, which were many. <laughs> Sam, uh, I also know, think this speaks very. Yeah. I think this speaks very loudly. You know, you could carve up the United States perhaps into four or five different countries, depending on your sensibilities. And Shelley, I think this speaks very loudly to this northeastern sensibility that we we have here that's quite uncommon from the rest of the country and I, I, I think that you know uh, that stark reality you know jumped out at you right away in California you know yeah I, I, I listen I root for the Mets when they don't play the Dodgers I want the Mets to win I, I, I root for the Jets to, to win in their football games uh, I wasn't a, a big New York Knickerbocker fan, but I, I root for the Knicks. They're coming back. But I will never root for the Giants football team, and I certainly will never root for the Yankees. To me, a great day to me is when the, the Yankees and Notre Dame both lose. Actually, I, so, I was more referring to, I was more referring to, you know, having to suit up for a job interview here. And, you know, that necessarily wasn't that's the protocol actually, in California. Uh, that's actually something yeah. where I, I wanted to go next to uh, Shelley. And, uh, did you ever watch Mad Men, Shelley? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. <clears throat> sorry, did you ever watch the show Mad Men? Yes, the advertising guy. Not and I, I feel, I think it was... I think it was about like season three or four that there was a little California incorporation. And just thinking about the first season uh, of them on Madison Avenue coming in from Ossining, uh, dressed up to the nines, 
Um, and then there's some of the exact same uh, contradictions that you're talking about, the, the differences between the, the contrast between California sensibilities and New York sensibilities. Yeah, it's uh, California's uh, and New York is more casual than it ever was. Uh, I, I went to shows and I dressed up a little bit. I didn't wear a tie, but I wore nice shoes. A uh, person next to me is wearing jeans, uh, T-shirts, tennis shoes, and we're watching Chicago, the show Chicago. Uh, when I was younger, you went on a plane, you wore a suit and tie. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, so it, it, a little bit of California is caught up with New York. But on the other hand, uh, some of New York is caught up uh, with California. Uh, California caught up, uh, caught up to New York. Uh, uh, California, when I first came, was a, a pretty uh, uh, laissez-faire type of uh, atmosphere. Uh, there wasn't that much of a hustle-bustle. Today, California, Los Angeles especially, and San Francisco, is uh, has New York at- atmosphere, workaholics, creative people everywhere. Uh, I, I I love the two states. I mean, I I will never disparage New York. I I I've always tell people I'm from Brooklyn. I, I'm proud of it, uh, and uh, I uh, and my kids all know it, and my grandkids know it. Sorry about that. Mike, I'm going to let you uh, finish. Actually, you know what? Before I pass it on to Mike, Mike, pick it up after Shelly. But my question following up with what you said is, do you ever wear, do do you mainly wear a Brooklyn Dodger cat to Dodger Stadium? Uh, Yes, I I wore that all the time. In fact, I just gave to my uh, uh, middle grandson, who's a big, baseball fan, big Dodger fan, favorite Dodger of all time is Jackie Robinson. I gave him my Brooklyn Dodger uh, jacket. Uh, first of all, it was always big on me. This kid is now six feet tall. It fits him. And uh, I wear uh, a, a blue Dodger hat with a B on it at times. I, um, I, uh, my, my lady friend's daughter just came back from Israel and brought me a Los Angeles Dodger shirt in Hebrew. So uh, I, I I take Brooklyn with me all the time. Uh, Brooklyn made me who I am. It's, uh, it was a fabulous borough. It's uh, becoming even more so. I, uh, I spent a lot of years living in Williamsburg, which was not a very well-to-do area. I lived around the corner uh uh, I lived on Bedford Avenue between South 2nd and South 3rd. And just a few years before that, around the corner on South 3rd, lived Mel Brooks. And just a few years after that, on Division Street, and I believe South 3rd, a block away, lived Barry Manilow. So we have, but of course, everybody knows who I am. So I, I, I'm a little bit modest to say that. But uh, Brooklyn is uh, great, has great people there, really, and, and, still, and very creative.
Hey, Mike, do you have anything to follow up with Shelly about? I lived his life. Uh, almost everything he said, you know, was part of my world. It's after my generation that things really started to change. Uh, so many things he said, Shelly, you know, are part of my personal experience here in Brooklyn. My uncles used to take us to McCarran Park. That's where my uncles used to teach us how to play baseball. Uh, in fact, my cousin lived on South 4th Street, not far away. Now, I understand that uh, public school 37 is no longer there. It was a real small school, and it was so small that the the yard only had two bases because it had a big wall, so you, you couldn't uh, have four bases there. And I tell people the story. They don't believe that when assembly came without leaving your seat, you were able to see the entire school. We had we had walls that moved, and the teacher would call wall wall monitors. They would move the wall, and you see the other fourth graders or fifth graders, wherever they were, uh, in the school. And it looks like we lost Mike for a second, so uh, hopefully he'll be able to call back in. But it, it's been a fascinating uh, talk with you, Shelley. And um, uh, while we're trying to get Mike back, uh, real quick, you know, anything that you think you didn't touch on tonight, by all means, uh, have at it. Well, one of the saddest days of my life was when Bobby Thompson hit that home run in 1951. And I was living on East 29th Street, 1565 East 29th Street, between Kings Highway and Avenue P. And I was almost in tears. And my brother was almost in tears. We just couldn't believe it. And there was a kid next door that nobody ever liked. He was a couple of years younger than myself. He always, if you said red, he would say white. Whatever he said, he would disagree with. And we came out of, out of the house, and there was this kid taunting us about the Giants being the champions, won the pennant, they beat the Dodgers. My brother and I ran over to him and grabbed him and put him into a garbage pail head first. And put the lid on, but we didn't close it completely. And we were still upset, but at least we got some vengeance, some revenge against the hated Giants. We took it out on this poor kid, Joseph. <laughs> I believe we have Mike back. Uh, yes, you do. I don't know what happened, but something went awry. I was just explaining to Sam where I hid the treasure. <laughs> and well, you'll have to you'll have to just uh, listen to that uh, over uh, wherever you like and subscribe uh, to podcasts. Everybody, Apple, Spotify, other. Let us know if the Bedford and Sullivan podcast was not there as we close in on about an hour and twenty minutes uh, into this episode. And um, Mike, I you know I was just asking him anything he wanted to touch on before we wrap the episode. He went to Bobby Thompson, so. Where do you want to go before we wrap the episode? Wow, Bobby Thompson, what a concept. I, you know, I, I just, I still have this big smile on my face uh, just listening to Shelley recount his experience in Korea. 
uh, I had electricity in bathrooms. Otherwise, my experience was very similar. Uh, that was the most brutal winter I've ever experienced. Uh, but not a lot has changed, Shelly. I will ask you this. I know when I was in the service, I was the token Brooklynite. And we see it all over the movies in Hollywood. They did it all the time. When you were in the service, were you the token Brooklynite? Well, uh, in Korea, I I was the token Brooklynite in my company. But I was a sergeant, so I didn't get picked on a lot. Uh, in Fort Dix, in Fort Dix, uh, there were a few from Brooklyn. And uh, the only time I was probably uh, made fun of a little bit, not much, was uh, when I was uh, stationed in uh, Indianapolis. But that was such a great post, great, great uh, uh, fort, great city. <clears throat> it was a finance school. The people were... Uh, the residents in Indianapolis treated us especially well. Um, you had a higher, I guess, higher edu- quality of uh, army personnel being in that uh, in the finance school. But uh, that, that was. I, I wish I would have stayed there all the time. I really liked it. I just didn't like drinking the water. It tasted terrible. It wasn't New York water, and nothing is. <laughs> nothing is. Yeah. Very nice. You know, I think that that's, uh, I'm going to ask myself the same question, what uh, haven't we touched on? And I did hint at it that we'd be touching on Gil Hodges, and speaking of Indiana, let's touch on Gil Hodges. Um, It is overdue, as we were talking about with uh, John Donaldson uh, of the uh, Negro Leagues, including the Brooklyn Royal Giants, it is overdue that these uh, gentlemen are in the Hall of Fame, so... I, I'll uh, yeah, I'll start with you, Shelley. Gil Hodges, your memories. Well, Vince Scully to this day, his greatest regret is not seeing Gil Hodges in the Hall of Fame. But I, I remember a couple of things about Gil Hodges. In nineteen forty eight, the Dodgers had a bunch of catches, like four catches. The starter in forty seven was Bruce Edwards. And he became the backup catcher to Roy Campanella. They had this kid, Gil Hodges, who was a catcher. In 47, Robinson, Jackie Robinson, was the first baseman because Eddie Stanky was the second baseman. They traded Eddie Stanky. They moved Jackie to second. And they put Gil Hodges at first base. So, and Gil Hodges was fabulous. There's a, there's a book, I'm sure you read it, read it Praying for Gil Hodges. Uh, about the time in the World Series, he didn't get a hit at all, and uh, it's written by Tim Oliphant. He's a Boston political writer, and he talked about his family growing up on the Lower East Side there, and they were Brooklyn Dodger fans. And this priest in the city of churches, Brooklyn, uh, gives a sermon and tells everybody to pray for Gil Hodges so he should get a hit. The second story I'll tell you about Gil Hodges is that he lived on on East 34th Street near Marine Park. He was the only Dodger to live in Brooklyn, other than Cal Abrams or anybody else who who grew up in Brooklyn. And he was there all year round. So in in October of 
two, I think it was. Uh, we're playing stickball on West 30 on uh, East 34th Street, and Gil Hodges comes out. And at first he's like an umpire. Then he slides the bat, and he hits a ball. You know, like uh, who knows, five miles he hits it. And his wife comes out and brings out cookies. And he was the most charming man, very modest, uh, just a, a wonderful human being. And uh, it's a shame, uh, not just from his ball playing, but from his managerial expertise with the Mets. He won them a World Series only because he saw black shoe polish on a ball. He should have gone in a long time ago. Yeah, uh, and and Mike, you know, we're going to be talking about it at some point in the near future on this podcast. Um, I, 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 I know we've told it on this podcast a bunch, but I don't believe Shelley has heard it, if you'd like to uh, indulge. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, 1972, when Gil Hodges passed away, uh, I'm six going on seven years old, and we lived on East 45th off of Snyder Avenue. It's a dead-end block. So you know the lay of the land. No dead-end block, you're free to be in the street with no worries. And that day, uh, whatever grown-ups and parents were on the block collected us kids together. And anybody who was on the block, for that matter, we all walked up Snyder Avenue uh, towards the cemetery, and that's when the motorcade passed by. Uh, I guess they anticipated it and, you know, watched the motorcade go by uh, entering Holy Cross Cemetery. And, you know, Little did I know that at the age of six, Gil Hodges would be laid to rest not more than 2,000 feet from where I live. And, you know, that's when uh, my education began of Gil Hodges and the Brooklyn Dodgers and more in depth about the New York Mets. I was already a Mets fan, but uh, I was not yet educated on the Brooklyn Dodgers and certainly not on Gil Hodges just yet. And that's when it started for me. And as a Brooklynite, he's always remained a part of my life. He, how, how can he not? Uh, as we mentioned, he, you encapsulated it perfectly, Shelley. He came out of the house and he started interacting with the kids and even played along. He's a man from Indiana. He came to Brooklyn. Uh, the borough embraced him. He embraced the borough back. Uh, and I always say that this can be a very apathetic town because of all the stimulus that they have to deal with on a daily basis. And to have our sensibilities match and mesh so well that he married, you know, a woman from Brooklyn and and lived throughout the year here in Brooklyn, uh, started a family and, and educated his children here. His daughter still lives here. I met Joan at a Brooklyn Cyclones game. So he's still a major part uh, of of the Brooklyn psyche. I don't think that will ever go away. And the fact that he's not in the Hall of Fame today is an injustice, and I hope they correct that and rectify that come December 5th. But, uh, you know, as a Brooklynite, I, I say with the utmost uh, honor, and, and I'm proud to call Gil Hodges a Brooklynite uh, because that's what he is. 
Yeah, I'd like to see number 14 in the Hall of Fame. That would be great. I hope it happens. You know, December 5th, we're going to hear, and I, I have this positive feeling within that we're going to hear good news, that, that for the first time with this vote, there are going to be people somehow, some way, who understand the emotion and the Brooklyn side of things that we're talking about. And so many, uh, you know, I, even recently somebody was kind of coming at me with comparable numbers. And I think this is what gets lost with the way the vote has gone for Gil Hodges uh, over the years, um, is that first it becomes this, well, you can't let all the Brooklyn Dodgers in. Well, why not, if all of them are worthy? Uh, and everybody wants to compare the offensive numbers, and I didn't even bring this up with the last person, excuse me, that I was arguing about his borderline potential, even as a player, um, because I think the managerial part just, you know, and the fact that it was cut short puts him over the top, but it's that eye test that gets lost with both um, – what, what seemed with the early 1960s way of voting on him as a player, um, but, but also now as people look back, you, you know, like they, they didn't even have – Keith Hernandez is out of the Hall of Fame, and he should be in, but even he has 11 gold gloves. Gil Hodges, I believe, only had about like three or four years uh, to uh, of, of defensive uh, uh, you know that's really all they've ever done it's just like they don't even have like stats exactly and they've obviously tried in the analytics age but uh, it's really only been the gold glove and that was very at the tail end of his of his uh, first base career but it's it's all of those everything that we're talking about just not only him as a leader on the field in the clubhouse and at bat, but everything we're talking about him as the character element that that is such a you know you can be very skeptical about it, but that's where it all comes down to between the character element, the baseball career, and the managerial career. Gil Hodges is a, is a Hall of Fame. Amen. Amen. And uh, with that, we will move to the final word. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, you have been listening to the Metsian podcast, and we're so thankful that you do. Again, if this is your first time, make sure to like and subscribe wherever you get podcasts to keep this Brooklyn conversation going. And, And tonight has been one of the more cinematic discussions that we've had the, the, the picture has been painted and this is why I started this podcast as I continue the writing endeavor with this potential TV series so thank you all thank you Shelly and, and this is how we, we do it Shelly um, we, we like to go around the table for a final word before I go to you I'm going to go to Mike not only for his final word but for like we like to call of course a shameless plug Are you starting with me, Sam? I'm sorry. Yes, Mike. 
by all means. Mike LeColant, the Brooklyn Trolley Blargo, I'll help you get the shameless plug started before your final word. <laughs> shameless uh, plug away and then final word, sir. Shameless plug. The Brooklyn Trolley Blogger. And it's just a spin off the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers. Uh, it's my blog. It's where I root for my teams and just revel in my life in Brooklyn. And my final word is thank you. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you for sharing your experiences. Uh, and I'm proud that I have uh, a lot of common experiences uh, w- with you. Uh, you know, being from Brooklyn and serving at Camp Casey, uh, I'm honored. Uh, and I-, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I-, I shared part of your upbringing. It's after my generation that things really started to change. So, uh your experiences turned into my experiences, be it at McCarran Park or Corny Island. So it's been my pleasure and an honor speaking with you, Shelley. And I do mean that not just because you're from Brooklyn, but also thank you for your service as a veteran. And uh, I want to reiterate uh, what Mike just said about that. You know, it was recently Veterans Day and, um, I, I think sometimes it all becomes a hashtag these days, but uh, it, it needs not just be that. It, it all gets muffled with everything that, all the distractions that get thrown our way. But I echo both towards Mike as well towards Shelley. Thank you for your service because I am the, am the USO show. I could never do what the two of you did. <laughs> the USO show. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the entertainment. I'm the creative. I'm the one tapped in. I like um, that. <laughs> so, Shelly, you know, um, before uh, I, again, I, I finish up, uh, thank you as well as, please, what, what would you like to finish with? What is your final word? Well, I I just enjoyed my entire life, and Speaking about it, uh, part, a major part of it was Brooklyn, and still is, and it, it, I'm a very happy guy, and if anybody, uh, I don't have a blog, but if anybody's interested in, in uh, contacting me or ask questions, just get hold of Sam Maxwell, and he knows how to contact me, and I love hearing <laughs> the stories from Mike, uh, even though I'm a bit older than he is. Uh, when you're from Brooklyn, you share the same experiences. So good night to everybody. And amen to that. And, yeah, your people will call my people. So get in touch, everybody, with me if you uh, want to ask Shelly anything else. And, again, Shelly, thank you so much. This has been a big inspiration uh, for me. Uh, you have painted, again, such a cinematic picture. And I have a feeling that some of the sensibilities and stories that uh, we've heard tonight will make their way onto this show uh, if I can, you know, muster up the chutzpah to get it done. So thank you again, and thank you to all who continue to listen to the Bedford & Sullivan podcast. We're, we're closing in on, uh, you know, it's been since 2013, so closing in on nine years going strong with this and we will continue to uh to keep the research process going so keep on listening and 
I guess the only way to end this is let's go Brooklyn. Thank you again, Shelly. Thank you again, Mike. Take care, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night.